Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I am speaking with uh, Patrick Lockwood again. Uh, Patrick is a psychologist and he specializes a bit on addiction. And we've spoken a, uh, once before and today I wanted to talk to him about a Twitter DM exchange that we had. Mm-hmm. So, hey Patrick, thanks for coming back on. No problem, thanks for having me. Uh, so, basically, I had this little hypothesis and I sent you a DM and I mean, if you can poke holes in it or whatever, if, I don't know if I've got anything with this. But basically, it went back to if you looked at the gangs in the '80s, uh-huh. and then you had the you know like a resurgence of white supremacist groups, and all the stuff that was done to like the anti-gang work and mm-hmm. you know de-radicalization at that point. I don't think they use that term though. Mm-hmm. These guys were going after. The disillusioned kids they were going after the the loners they were going after the ones that felt that society had wronged them somehow or other they were you know victims like they just they had a profile for what the majority of these people were and it could be across any class rich or poor um i mean you saw it with the 9-11 bombers you know they were they were like engineers and doctors you know they weren't uneducated right um and so any work that's going on in counterterrorism now they're saying the kind of the same things like in the mosques and stuff they're going after people who are disillusioned <clears throat> now after reading critical race theory after reading you know queer theory all this stuff intersectionality and then looking at how it's going into the school curriculums yeah all i can see is you're getting people who are so hyper focused on how they've either victimized people or they've been victims I just see it creating more divisions and creating more people that fit the profile of someone that can be picked up by, you know, any type of extremist. So, sure. like I said, I don't know if I have anything there or if I'm just, you know, <clears throat> tilting at windmills or, you know, like I said, poke holes in it, please. <laughs> sure. I, I, I wish I could poke some substantive holes in it, but unfortunately, um, mm-hmm. the first problem is I'm not as knowledgeable as I could be about the history of uh, gangs and changing behavior through kind of working with the most victimized and the most, let's say, outcast groups of people. Um, I can speak to, generally speaking, my experience with gangs that, yeah, of course, the the people on the fringes tend to get called in because, you know, they don't have a home, so they need to find a home somewhere. So that makes intuitive sense to me. And what what's more important here is, as a clinical psychologist, is how this process of the critical theorists kind of grabbing the people at the fringes who are really badly struggling and even I would say the people who are not as badly struggling at the fringes are being inculcated in these you know theoretical gangs I think theoretical gangs is probably the best way to describe them and I just came up with that off the top of my head just it's it sounds so true because they are theory gangs they just it's a it's a mob mentality, but it's more like a gang. It's more gang than it is straight up mob. And the problem here is, let's just say for the sake of argument that you yourself have experienced some serious trauma. Maybe you were assaulted somewhere, etc., and that left a mark on you. And sometimes you have kind of classic symptoms of PTSD. You have intrusive thoughts. Maybe you remember the scary thing that happened to you too consistently. Maybe you have flashbacks. Maybe you have hypervigilance looking for signs of that scary thing to happen again. You know, you got assaulted by a guy, so now every guy that looks like that person that assaulted you kind of triggers you, right? Mm. So the problem is, is if you were victimized, 
And let's just say for the sake of argument, you had this all-knowing force, a psychologist, who said, hey, I'm so sorry that you've been victimized. It's terrible that you're a victim. In fact, you need to own the fact that you're a victim, and that needs to be the most important thing about you. In fact, you should focus on it even more. In fact, it should be the most important part of who you are, and you should revel in that fear and in that panic and in that terror, and you should have nightmares more and all that stuff. That is the equivalent of what these critical theorists are doing, is let's focus, at the extremes especially, they're saying, let's take this facet of your identity, the fact that you were a victim because of your race, your gender, your sexual orientation, whatever it is, and let's make that the most important part of you. Let's not focus on your strengths, let's, and positive psychology is mostly bullshit, but let's not focus on your strengths, right? Let's, let's not focus on... Let's not focus on the facets of you that are adaptive, that are functioning well, that have not been victimized. Let's focus on this one part of you that is probably not even the most important part of you as a person. And let's make sure that is the thing that runs your mentality all day long. So they're intentionally traumatizing people. And as a psychologist, I'm like, what the hell is going on here? That's insane. Yeah. That's crazy making. Okay. Uh, uh, speaking to a friend of mine recently, just before Halloween, and he's, you know, he's roughly the same age as me. I'm, I'm 50. And he was taking his son to the store to buy costumes. Sure. And he's listening to the other parents and the kids. And these kids yeah. are, you know, let's say 9 to 12. Uh-huh. And they're like, the kids are telling the parents, I can't wear that because that might be offensive to someone. The kids are telling the parents. Yeah. And their parents are scratching their heads. Yeah. Now, okay, I'm not saying you dress your kid up in a KKK costume, but if if your little daughter wants to be Mulan or your son wants to be Aladdin, you know, buy them the goddamn costume. You know, like, you don't have to go full Justin Trudeau and do the shoe polish modeling to, to wear the Aladdin costume. But, you know, the kid can put on a costume, right? Right. But, I mean, 9 and 10-year-olds should not be thinking about this is going to... I mean, and then someone's going to say, well, you're saying you don't want kids to not know about racism. No, okay, it's there. It's out there. But equating innocent things like this, because this is innocent. It's a, it's a kid wanting to dress up like a cartoon character. I mean, I don't know how much more innocent you can get with that. And sure. and and you're you know, you're making these kids just so focused on this. Like, I don't see how you can like once you start. Okay, if, like I said, especially if they're preteens and they start going to adolescence, thinking like this. I mean, you already got so much other stuff going on. Like, yeah, all the raging hormones and everything. Yeah, throw this into the mix. I don't see how we're gonna get healthy functional adults out of this I don't think we can and that was one of the points of uh, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff in the coddling of the American mind you know it's there are these ideologies that are creating a I would say a rather you know um, kind of feeble mind a mind that is not capable of withstanding basic stressors so they kind of collapse at everything that happens. I think that was basically the point of the book, and that's ludicrous, right? You know, that's absolutely ludicrous. Yeah. You know, not everything is going to make someone crumble. A costume is not typically going to make someone crumble and fall apart and have PTSD. Like, it might be slightly offensive, but there's nothing wrong with being offended. Yeah, but I mean, okay, there's, you know, 
an adult, like a, again, I mean, I don't want to harp on the Justin Trudeau thing, but it's just because it's such a prime example of it. Yeah. Him doing that as a teacher yeah. in a school, yeah. it's like, okay, you know, someone taking an offense at that is a little bit more credible than someone taking an offense at a 10-year-old dressed up as either Mulan or Aladdin or Pocahontas or whatever, right? That 10-year-old is doing it out of innocence and whatever, you know, someone like Trudeau is doing it out of ignorance and stupidity and maybe racism. I don't know. Like, you know, uh, I don't want to throw that out there until you know more about it. But like I said, it's the kid is innocence and an adult. I mean, that's at the very least, that's ignorance and stupidity. Right. And, and, you know, for most kids, when they're, you know, wearing costumes and whatnot, Mm. there's a, a real simple principle of play happening where they are imagining and fantasizing and being a character. So they're kind of stepping into the world of another character and sometimes of another culture, right? So if you, uh, you wear the Mulan costume or you wear the Pocahontas costume or, or, you know, Aladdin or Jasmine or whatever the costume, right? Like those are kids that are actually literally trying to step into the world of another character. Now it might be the character as personified by, you know, Disney's version of someone from the Middle East, which could inherently be stereotyped and biased and probably is because it's Disney. But the, the gist is, Here's here's the irony of people getting pissed off at kids wearing costumes from a different culture or race or whatever. The people who want so badly to end racism and oppression use techniques like stepping into the shoes of another person, trying to empathize with another person's point of view. Mm-hmm. So isn't it fascinating that they're going to bully college students and even little kids about trying to literally step into the shoes of another person and play and act as if and imagine what it's like to be that other person when that's exactly what these corporate hacks who come to corporate diversity trainings are teaching people to do. Try to pretend as if you're the other person. Try to see through their eyes. Yet these nine-year-olds are trying to do that in costumes and they're being bad-mouthed for doing it. But people pay thousands of dollars to get taught how to do that as adults. So what's the problem here? Yeah, but okay, but now I it's... <laughs> Like, unfortunately, the what you're talking about there, okay, empathize and put yourself in the other person's shoes. Yeah. Okay, that's that used to be kind of what it was supposed to be. Now it's, there's no way you'll ever know what the other person's experience is like because, you know, uh, a person of color can know the, you know, can understand the white person's way of doing things because they live in the white world. And it's a white way of knowing, a white way of doing things. And then they can also understand their own lived experience, whereas a white person can't. So a person of color has has two of that. So it's, and then if you ask, well, can you explain your experience to me? That you're told back, well, if you do that, that's racist, and that's, yeah. you know, uh, you're exploiting their experience to better understand. But you'll never understand. You're supposed to understand. So, I mean, now it's they don't even want you to empathize with the person. They just want you to shut up and listen and do what you're told sure i mean there's a big difference between empathizing with someone's situation and trying to picture yourself in that situation and see okay this is where i went wrong and trying to understand it you know and there's then also then someone saying you have to do this this is what you're being told and don't try to understand it just believe it and do it i mean those are two different approaches and they're taking the second approach now 
Sure, absolutely. And to, to be fair, right, because I want to make sure I do my best to be intellectually honest about this, it's, it's not that all critical theorists and all of these pro-critical theory people are at the extreme edge cases of the normal distribution. It, in fact, there are plenty of people who do critical theory research who you know, are anti-bias, anti-discrimination, who are just decent folks who are researchers or psychologists or whatever it is, sociologists, who really are concerned about prejudice. Maybe they have experienced prejudice themselves, so it kind of puts them in that field. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'll give you a real crystal clear example from my personal life. So I, I did a training in Compton the other day, or not Compton, it was um, it was near Compton. And I, it was in an all-black community, basically, or, yeah. And one of the other speakers there was, uh, I forget the uh, university he's from, he was an African-American guy, Dr. Brian Marks, I believe is his name, and he talked about implicit bias and stereotypes and things like that. And he gave a very well-reasoned, very thoughtful, non-dramatic, yeah. like non-edge case presentation of what implicit bias is and helped people understand what their implicit biases are. He used kind of classic examples like, you know, who do you like better, LeBron James or, or Kobe Bryant, right? And kind of like talking about what your implicit bias, because you don't even have to think about mm -hmm. it to know who you like better, right? Yeah. And that's, that, that's a good trick, right, to kind of get people to start thinking about the concept in, in, a, in an unbiased way, in a, in a non-ego-threatening mm -hmm. way. He did a very, very good job. He's very smart, very funny. But then there are these people that you and I hear about and we interact with on Twitter and in other places and the people that attack, you know, James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose that are the edge cases that are doing terrible things and are using critical theory as a as a as a machete and not as a scalpel to kind of dissect things. And that's not what it was designed for. So the problem that we find is <clears throat> the people on the edge cases are they're the loudest. They're the nastiest. They're the meanest. They're the people that take a scalpel kind of instrument and use it as a machete. And, and that's the problem that we face. Yeah, okay. The edge cases and all that, I will grant you that. But I think this is more than just edge cases now because it is in schools. Yes. Right? You know, it is being taught from K through 12. So that's yeah. not an edge case anymore, right? That's that's become mainstream. Um, yes. Okay, now, we've got a minority government in Canada, thank God, uh, but the Liberal Party says that the lens they will use to look at all policy decisions is the lens of gender-based analysis plus. So that's what? intersectionality plus queer theory and gender theory. Wow. So they are going to use that as the lens to decide all policy. Now, I'm sorry, that that is now mainstream. Yeah. Right? Um so things like this, like, yes, the, the loudest people, the craziest people, you might say, are the fringe, but that fringe is getting bigger. And and I think a lot of it is people just going along with it and not truly understanding, like, yeah, because it's, uh, I, I keep harping on the, the book because it's great, but it's uh, Jonathan Rauch's <clears throat> Kindly Inquisitors because what he talks about is the humanitarian threat. And this is what it is, right? It's don't you want to be, don't you want to fight racism? Don't you want to fight homophobia? Like it's mm -hmm. yes, like and again, you brought up those those people who are doing the thoughtful work. This isn't like you know causes of racism. How you can temper it? How you can get people to you know not go along with their instinct or whatever? Right? Like you can. Yeah. That's important. It needs to be talked about, and it's 
still an issue. It's not as bad as it was. You know, yeah. It's gotten you know markedly better, or at least it did until this stuff started coming in. And but you're just using the wrong tools. Yeah. And it's like that's. I mean, I, I think this is harder to fight than okay. I'll, sorry, I'm rambling here. I'll give you an example. Like Charlie Kirk recently, and it's Charlie Kirk is someone I can't stand. Right? I, yeah. I think he's a really odious person. Sure. But at least he called out these white supremacists, and he said, "You know, we have okay, and we can get into the whole argument like how much, how long, how much, did, how did he push, how much did he push them along, whatever." Like I don't want to, but when he saw that at one point, it's like, okay, this is easy to say. No, we don't want that, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it's very easy to to cordon off. Yeah. While don't you want to fight racism? You know, it's like when you're fighting against, like, you're saying, like, okay, no, that's the wrong way to go about it. Like, anti-racism is just one of the worst things to fight racism with. Mm-hmm. But when they come at you with, don't you want to fight racism? It's like, how do you cordon that off? <laughs> you know? Right. <clears throat> and I think that's why it's important, like you literally just did with Charlie Kirk, right? So mm-hmm. you might find him despicable in most cases, but then once in a while he will do something positive or that mm-hmm. you agree with, and mm-hmm. you need to call that out and speak to that because... Mm-hmm. If we keep seeing people as these unidimensional creatures where they're all bad, black and white thinking or distorted thinking, right? No one supports that except for the anti-racists, it seems like. No psychologist worth their salt, to use a Jordan Peterson phrase, um, (laughs) believes that you should use a cognitive distortion like black and white thinking to survive and function in a nuanced issue. So the fact that Charlie Kirk did do something good by calling out those alt-right morons is a great thing. That doesn't necessarily mean that Charlie's a great guy or that his ideas make sense. It just means that he did one good thing, and we should acknowledge that. Because if we don't acknowledge the sane moments, then people will start to lose sight of what sane looks like, right? Even from insane people. That's the thing that we have to do consistently. That's why I brought up Dr. Brian Marks, because I want people to know that... Even if, let's say, he is radical, but he just was really not radical that one day, it's possible to talk about these ideas in a non-radical way that's extremely important, right? We have to talk about the same moments that exist, and the problem is we have this very polarized us versus them thing. So when I present my paper in January at the Heterodoxy and Psychology Conference, I'm actually going to talk about the virtues of critical theory and why it's still important, which is going to probably piss some people off that I like. And that's okay, because I want to make sure that we don't use dichotomous thinking. It doesn't serve anyone. That's a problem. Okay, I was speaking with um, a friend of mine, and he does uh, he does coaching, and he also does therapy. Uh-huh. And he was talking about how he's coming across now. People will come into his practice, and will say, well, you know, I've got anxiety, I'm overweight, and I'm uh-huh. white. Mm-hmm. And they, they're like, and I'm white. And it's that's something that... It okay, you're. I mean, I don't want to go into the whole litany of racism and how things were bad. As you know, in the United States, you can talk about you know, you know, redlining, Jim Crow, slavery. Yeah. I mean, like, every, there's a lot of horrible stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Things have gotten progressively better, but yeah, to then turn around and say, okay, well, you were the cause of it, so for you know, you did this for 300 years, so for the next 300 years, you're going to be feeling the the heel of it i mean a they're they're the majority of the population right now do you really want to do that (laughs) like you 
you know, like I'm like I said that, that again. That's why I'm worried about the way this is coming into the school system because if you have this coming into the school system and you've got all these people feeling this way, you know, the white supremacists are gonna have you know their pick of the crop of who they want. Yeah. You know, people like Antifa, same thing. Um, yeah. Okay, take a look at ISIS. Now, right. all of a sudden in 2015, I should say all of a sudden, but around 2015, that's when majority of the, the foreign fighters started going there, right? Mm. I mean, these people just didn't at the drop of a hat. Like, this stuff had been, you know, when you're talking about in the United States and Europe, this mm-hmm. stuff was being taught in universities, was being taught in schools. Sure. Yeah. You know, so you've got a language now of why you're a victim. Mm-hmm. Why you're feeling dissatisfied, and then someone is offering you something, like you said, okay, come join us. You'll be a part of something bigger than you. We'll fight mm-hmm. the oppression. We'll fight the West. We'll fight whatever, right? We'll fight mm-hmm. colonialism. You know, mm-hmm. any of this stuff. And it just you're taking people that are very pliable time in their lives, mm-hmm. and you're molding them into something that, like I said, any extremist is going to pick off. And I mean that. I'm more worried, like, I'm not worried about left-wing violence so much as I am right-wing violence. I think the right-wing could be far more violent. Mm-hmm. And again, these left-right terms don't mean much. So, yeah, I mean, like, I'm looking at this, and I'm really worried about the overcorrection. And I see it brewing, and I see it happening, and yet these people are just still going along saying, oh, look how divisive they are, look how divisive they are, and they're creating mm-hmm. divisions. Sorry for that sure. rant. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's that's all well said. And it's, it, I think that's the concern that many, many, many people have that are kind of in the middle, in the center of the political spectrum nowadays is this is kind of ridiculous what's going on and both sides are going to overcorrect. So what the hell mm-hmm. do we do? Right. And back to the kids point, I want to I want to focus on that for just a second, because I think that's extremely important. So there is no sane developmental psychologist who says you should teach a kid to hate their identity. None. There's, there's, there's no reasonable person of any professional background who thinks that makes sense. And I don't think, like you're saying, the vast majority of people who are teaching this curriculum actually really know what it's about and really know where critical theory comes from. They really don't get it at all. They're just teachers who have been taught that diversity is important and inclusion is important. They've been taught that if they don't teach people to not be biased and prejudiced, that bad things will happen and maybe they'll be considered racist themselves, right? Like that's that's probably the average person in like New York City that just spent millions of dollars training people on this bullshit, right? So the problem is is that you have to do both in my opinion. Like I think if you really want to raise kids in such a way that they are thoughtful and they are open-minded, that they do need to go, okay, how am I built? What do I look like? What do I sound like? What does that mean about me as a person? I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think teaching kids self-reflection is perfectly cool. I think teaching them to say, because I'm white, or because I'm black, or because I'm Hispanic of some sort, whatever it is, right? And because I sound like this, that I should be extra worried, or I should be extra sensitive, or I should walk on eggshells, or whatever it is, that's ludicrous to me. That makes literally no sense. You're creating an anxiety disorder in a kid, and there's no reason for that. But to say, hey, you know, I want to make sure that I'm nice to people no matter what they look like or sound like, that's perfectly reasonable. Teach kids that shit all day long. That's Barney 101, essentially. And 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 there's nothing wrong with that. I don't like Barney, but I think there's nothing <laughs> wrong with that concept, right? Yeah. 
Barney, yeah, well, okay, let's not get into the pros and cons of Barney the dinosaur. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, okay, no, but that's just it. But it's still, I mean, what you're talking about is what, I mean, what I was taught. You're going to see people who are different. Yeah. But just because they look different doesn't mean they think, feel, and act differently. Right. And so, you know, get to know people and judge them, you know, like, on the content of their character, not on the color of their skin, right? I mean, yeah. okay, and I've got no skin in this game. I've got no kids. You know, I've got a niece and a nephew. But the only skin I've got in this is these are the people who are going to be the politicians, the lawyers, the doctors, or whatever. They're going to write the policy. My old age pension through my government is going to be decided upon by these people. You know, mm-hmm. And if my government right now is making policy based on this stuff that's going to affect me when mm-hmm. I'm in retirement age... Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's where I have issues with this, right? And like, it, fine, it's very selfish. Yeah. But also, I mean, I've traveled quite a bit. I've seen people at pretty much their worst. And, you know, what we have is pretty much the best system of government governance. You know, sure, like, sure. like, like you know, the ideas of the Enlightenment and... You know, that offends me that someone wants to take that apart and take it for granted and not see how good it is. And, you know, like out of any, like, like I really don't like making arguments from this, but that's, if I'm going to take an offense at anything out of this whole stuff, it's that. Mm. You know, like, and I, I don't see how this, okay, there's one, there's that. They're, they're teaching kids how to feel sorry for themselves. Yeah. Or give them excuses for why they might fail, right? Right, right. Uh, there's that. But then this whole idea of that the system we're in is so bad and so evil that it needs to be taken down. And Yeah. yeah. No, that's a problem. I mean, think of if, if it was just as simple as teaching people logic, this would have been done a long, long time ago. Because any even like angry, radical person can sit back in their calm moments and go, okay, compared to Afghanistan, compared to Saudi Arabia, compared to any number of countries where there's outright oppression that is outright killing people, like murdering people on the daily in horrific identitarian ways. The U.S. is not bad. Canada is not bad. Germany is not. Like, you you could make a, a real simple argument that basically speaking, None of these countries, if in just your simplest logical form, are, are not bad. In fact, they're way, way above board in many ways. The problem is it's not a logic problem that these people who are radical activists or radical critical theorists are facing. It's an emotion problem. As I argue in my book and as I'm going to argue in the paper in, that I'm presenting in January, these people are hijacked emotionally pretty consistently. They've been sensitized, just like a person who has PTSD has been sensitized to specific triggers, specific uh, stimuli, right? So if you were traumatized because you were assaulted by a 68-year-old Caucasian male, then that's probably the specific trigger that you're going to be sensitive to before you get therapy to deal with that PTSD, right? So every 68-year-old Caucasian male is going to trigger you in some way, shape, or form, and that's a big deal, and you need to deal with that trigger in therapy when there are tons of evidence-based therapies for that. The problem is is that these critical theorists are saying, I'm not going to deal with the fact that I'm sensitive, and I'm going to use my sensitivity 
and my bias and my fear and my instincts to run the show. That's a problem. So they can't logically go, well, you know, Canada, the U.S., Germany, Britain, even though there's still some kind of patriarchal whatever and da-da-da-da-da, it's way better than about a hundred countries on the planet. And maybe I'm I'm wrong here too. Like, and this is just coming out of the, like the the the, the new uh, study that the Heterodox Academy did about Jordan Peterson. Jordan. Okay. Yeah. Now I'm uh, not a huge Peterson <laughs> fan. Right. Sure. I, he came into the spotlight because of the bill in Canada, and I liked what he had to say about free speech. Uh huh. But majority of the a lot of his other stuff. Um, I mean, Douglas Murray said it best when he when he used that term, Jesus smuggling, and that that's my big beef with Peterson. But yeah, I mean, I'm looking at this stuff and I'm thinking, okay, are we kind of doing the same thing here? Because mm-hmm. there is some. Okay, I'm not saying that this is like some of this social justice stuff is really big, like coming into schools, you know, attacking like today, like I saw a bunch of people attacking science. Um, like just go outright saying, okay, science is not, there is no such thing as objective truth. Science horrible. Like, you know, but like when you're going after someone like Jordan Peterson, I'm like, are you, you're free? I think you're forgetting some things. I think we're being algorithmed into believing that we're more extreme than we are. Sure. Uh, so like, I'll give you the example, like the thing that the heterodox Academy did, like, okay, the word search and the similar words and all that. But did you look at, so when Peterson first came out and started speaking out against the bill and, and everyone labeled him a transphobe and this and that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the typical litany of crap. Uh, so the algorithms picked up on that. So you watch a Peterson video and it's recommended for you next is something along those lines. So it's like, so is the algorithm doing, is it that the algorithm's doing or is that Peterson's doing, right? Right. Like, I mean, again, I think when we're arguing like when someone like something like that comes out from like a place like the heterodox academy now it's one study and i don't know who did it and again it's the heterodox academy so they are open to different points of view right that's the whole point of them so maybe they, that's why they published it like sure i don't know anything beyond that point but i think like this study and the one that was done i can't remember who did it like the media matters thing from a little while back mm-hmm. i think that's one of the things like no one's looking at it's like how is the algorithm itself affecting how this is doing like and was the algorithm not written by critical race theorists but the people who were programming it were directed by you know human resources and whatever and diversity training who are trained in this stuff and they were giving the impetus to the programmers of this is what we want the algorithm to look for so it like that's being put into the algorithm like again this is tinfoil hat alex jones stuff from my end i'm just kind of (laughs) Yo, talking this out as I go. So, yeah, and I think what was it? The it was it the New York Times or someone just came out with an article that said that uh, um, they finally figured out that Google was altering their algorithms and stuff yeah. like that for searches and things like that, and yeah. everyone just jumped all over it, like, "Oh, we've been talking about this for years, right?" Yep. Yeah. I mean, okay. So here's the problem: is that ideology cuts both ways. Algorithm manipulation or Let's call it statistical manipulation cuts both ways. So, yeah, it's probably a very fair hypothesis that, you know, algorithms aren't created in such a way that they're as neutral or, um, let's say, unbiased as they could be because all creatures are biased, right? But it's also the same problem, and the reason the critical theorists and all those people are pissed at the objectivity of Western science and the scientific method 
So as much as we might giggle at that because we kind of basically know how it works and the, the intention of you know the scientific method, here's the problem. So in, in the stats world, statistics world, structural equation modeling and more advanced upper level statistics, you know, linear regression and things of that nature, if you manipulate the way you enter data and the way you create models, you can in effect get whatever outcome you want. So technically speaking, you can have just as hackable and biasable an outcome as you would with a Google AI metric or YouTube AI metric. So they're right in, in, in one way to be skeptical of the biased way that some scientists might be creating outcomes using statistics, right? There's an article that came out, um, uh, a paper that came out earlier this year by Jellison and colleagues and they found that over 56% of psychology and psychiatry abstracts, titles, and conclusion sections were way overblown trying to state a case, right? So because of all the issues in the publication crisis and replication crisis mm -hmm. and all the issues in psychology and fee for publishing and all that stuff, we do have a problem with bias. We do have a problem of trying to make things true, right? So there's an objectivity problem in the object of sciences to a degree, especially in the psychology and psychiatry journals, maybe not so much in physics and chemistry and all that stuff. But both sides have some points. They have some, some validity. And I think if we acknowledge that validity in a very nuanced and specific way, we can actually help them calm down and listen to our point of view better. Yeah. And I mean, okay, the, the science thing, I think one of the biggest ones you can say is the sugar study through Harvard, right? Like the... Yeah. Now, because it's such the, like such a blatant thing. Now, I think they're getting confused with science as a body of knowledge, and they're looking at that. Okay, see, this is science. Scientists do this. They they skew data. They do. Okay, that was caught out, and that's bad science. And that's yeah. the methodology in and of itself is supposed to catch that, right? If you follow the methodology. And like, let's say you come up with a, you know, you've done a study, you've done a bunch of tests and you've done, okay, you log all your data. You say, this is the, this is how I did everything. And then, you know, teams of psychologists in different universities in, you know, four or five different locations, look at your methodology, agree with that it was good, follow that and come up with very similar results. That, okay. That's peer review. That's okay. That was, and that's how it's meant to work, right? If the methodology right. is solid, the peer review system everything works now yes you're dealing with people and you know you could slip someone a couple of bucks i'm not saying you would or whatever you know like you yeah. know and then um and they could accept it and they could say okay fine we we did it and they kind of you know fudge the numbers a little bit that can happen but if you apply that rigor and that methodology to it at any given point that'll be exposed Sure. Whereas the other side has no, as far as they can tell, they have no real rigor. Right, absolutely. They have a theory that guides their behavior, and anything that can be loosely fitted into that theory is gold for them. You know, I just I just made fun of, a, a, thanks to James, I just made fun of a, a set of slides, and the citation from the person presenting at NYU was from a website. There was no, there were no real citations. There was no academic anything. It was just there's these 500 biases or whatever according to this website called groupthink.com. 
I'm sure it's perfectly valid and reputable and scientific and shit, right? Like, yeah, of course, people like that are going to slip through the cracks and we have to call it out when we see it. And hopefully, you know, the theory is not corrupting people. The problem is, again, if if you don't give the devil its due, then, then people will feel shut down. So I'm really, really big on making sure people who are critical theorists or people who are kind of, let's say, um, Antifa or whatever it is, like whatever the radical notion is, that they're given a voice and that the parts of their concerns, even if they're minuscule, that are valid, are validated. Because what I see a lot, especially in the online world, is I see people kind of responding with generalizations and not giving them any of their due. And that's a problem because that's going to turn them off right away. Automatic fight. But if you can actually, like, I've been confronted a number of times in the last two months. And every time that I've been confronted, I've always walked away from the debate with them liking me. And the reason that the, the opponent likes me is because I hear them out. I speak reasonably. I acknowledge where they are correct, even though I may think that the majority of their point is wrong or that they're ideologically biased, I always give them their due. And I've not walked out of a, a Twitter fight with an enemy. Yeah. I mean, okay. Again, there there is valid things. But, and I, I don't disagree with anything you're saying, and the only but I have here is, it's kind of hard when someone is that ideological and that's the way their thinking goes and their worldview doesn't allow them to give you the same credence and so they might not even want to listen to you it depends on how far along they are right right um if they're too far they don't care that you agree with one of it there for them it's a zero sum sure sure and i think that's where maybe my my training as a shrink is probably helpful to a degree because I'm specifically trained to deal with people who are resistant to change. Like that's my whole shtick <laughs> yeah. is, is you talking to people who don't necessarily want to change their mind and getting like with one of the hardest things on the planet to stop using drugs specifically. Like that is my whole shtick. So I think, you know, the art, because it's an art, there's a science to it, but the art of it is really the, the hard part. So being able to recognize why someone's defensive, where the pain is, where the fear is, etc., that's making them want to dig their heels in and deal with that pain and that fear and that resistance, that's where the rubber meets the road. And that's where most people, that's where like the academic academics are going to fail miserably. The and I love Peter and James and Helen, but they're going to fail because they're really not trained in such a way to really fully deal with the resistance of people. They're trained to be correct, but they're not trained to think, reflect, and be emotional with people. That's a, it's a very different set of skills that they don't necessarily have. So the goal is to kind of leverage the human side of you in a way that actually allows people to connect with you. And that's the hardest thing, is to overcome that initial hump with the people who really are ideologically and emotionally invested. Okay, yeah. And, I mean... You know, I, I get what you're saying, and I, you know, full disclosure, I, I dig my heels in. I, I, <laughs> you know, like, no, but it's, yeah, for me, it's also part of it is like, I feel like I'm being patronized because mm. you know what, 
oh you know you need protection you're a brown person we we need to save and it's like screw off like not only do i no no not only do like i see this and i'm like no you guys are wrong but at the same time there's this condescending attitude of oh we need to protect you brown people because you know you can't take care of yourself and you know fuck you i can and and sec i mean and then there's a another worse aspect to it like from the from the the white supremacist ethno realist whatever the hell you want to call those racist guys you know oh you guys can't fix your own shit we got to come fix it for you or screw Mm. you go and we'll wash our hands with you because you know we don't want to fix your shit anymore with like these left-wing guys it's like uh, i call them benevolent bigots it's like oh no no we have to come fix your stuff but not only do we have to come fix it for you see you were too stupid to have caused it on your own. If it wasn't for us, you wouldn't be in this mess. We had to cause your problems for you. Mm. And, you know, and like, it, I'm like, no, that's even, yes, I can cause my own problems. God damn it. I don't need you to cause my problems for me. I'm more than capable of doing it. <laughs> and a lot of these countries are as well. Like, yeah. Oh, okay. Douglas Murray's not this book now, but the one before it, uh, the strange death uh-huh. of Europe. He puts a, he taught, he has it in the, in the book. And he talked about it earlier. I'd heard him, speak about it in an interview a couple years before the book came out it was a story about this journalist speaking to Arafat everything's finished journalist is packing up one of Arafat's aides comes in and tells Arafat that the American delegation is here so the journalist you know being a journalist oh why is the American delegation here apparently Arafat started laughing and said the American delegation is doing a tour of the Middle East to apologize for the Crusades now what the hell did the US have to do the Crusades and why are they going apologizing and that's what it seems like to me you know it's like screw you you know like you know like but it is so condescending that we caused your problems and we have to come fix them for you because you're not you're too facile to have done it or to have fixed it and I'm like don't talk to me like that totally (laughs) Yeah, no, no, I, I, I get that. I respect that, man. It, it's very, very difficult if people um, are taking away your sense of agency because, you know, one of the things that we really want as creatures is to feel like we have power and we have volitional capacity. And, you know, for the kind of the fringe people who are spouting this ideology, they they talk about it in such a way that you are some kind of an moron because your skin color is such or your gender is such or your sexual preference as such and it's like okay that probably feels kind of bad right yeah. of course it feels bad but see the thing is that's where you know it's really important in your debates and in your arguments to really be cognizant of your stuff right that's one of the reasons why I think I've been very successful with people is I don't care about my personal stuff like the fact that I'm a male means almost nothing to me. The fact that I'm bisexual means literally nothing to me. I just like to fuck a lot of people. Like the fact, whatever it is, it means literally nothing to me when I'm debating ideas because they're just ideas. And my goal is to see whatever the truth is, you know, whatever is actually going to affect change for either of us in the moment. It just does not matter insofar as we're talking about an idea. Now, Obviously, if I'm in a personal circumstance with someone, those categorical memberships do matter because I might be personal with them. But if I'm debating someone on Twitter in a more or less academic way, my identity really does not matter that much. It's it's much it's it's like a um, it's a red herring that my identity should matter in any way, shape, or form about any of these things. You know, the fact that I'm tall should mean almost literally nothing 
about my ideas in the sense of like, well, let's talk about how racism really plays out in the world. Mm-hmm. My height should mean nothing. Like one of my favorite quotes from, uh, gosh, what is his name? Coleman Hughes. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite quotes from him is, I, at some point I want race to be as interesting as height. Right? Mm-hmm. Something to that effect. And it's like, yeah, absolutely. We'll notice it. It might have some practical limitations, maybe, because if you're particularly short, you can't reach things. If you're a particular skin color, that might mean that certain kinds of people hate you stupidly, right? There's a limitation there, right? Other than that, it it, it shouldn't be terribly interesting. Like, up until the fact that you and I are, are chatting right now, I totally forgot what you look like. It just doesn't register to me on Twitter when we're chatting. Yeah, but, but, but that's just it. Okay, like, I'm the same way. Like, I don't care about... I, I don't. It's not in the back of my mind that, you know, I'm brown. I was born in India. I got Arab. I, I couldn't care. About that. No, but okay. Let's say we were. You know, someone's interviewing me and they're talking to me and they're asking me about my background. Yes, then that matters, right? Sure. But in the idea sphere, but like I said, when I'm, when the idea that I'm trying to counter is, you know, like so hyper focused on my identity. I mean, you can't help but think about it because. Yeah, it's being thrown in your face, right? And it's like, no. It, and I, again, I like like you said when I was speaking to Jimmy the other week about this. That, okay, he was bringing it in the uh, Jimmy's gay and he's an ex-Muslim, and he went to this. Uh, there was a meeting from an inclusive mosque. So there, you know, these progressive mosques coming up uh, a few in Europe. There's uh, mm-hmm. a couple in Canada, I think, and maybe around the United mm-hmm. States. And oh. there, you know, there's no segregation of men and women. Uh, they have. Uh, if there is, if it is a specifically an open progressive mosque, they will have in the mosque meetings for, get, you know, LGBTQ um, uh, Muslims, so they can discuss that and whatever. But there was this progressive Muslim group that was having this meeting in London, and they had to have it in a community center or a church basement because they couldn't hold host it in any mosque because no mosque will have them, right? And yeah, if they yeah. did, there's a physical danger. Yeah, but they have bought in wholeheartedly into critical race theory, mm. so that they are spending all their time discussing the white man and how the yeah. white man is bad. And yeah. Jimmy is like, "But wait a minute, why are you doing it here? You know, your biggest threat is not the average white Brit. You know, when fifty-two percent of Muslims think it's." A criminal offense and should be punished by jail in the UK. Mm-hmm. You know, when I think it's something like ninety-five percent say it's wrong, and fifty-two percent say you should be put in prison. Like, isn't your bigger threat the Muslim population, not the white man? But that's—I mean, it's—it's—it's it's, it's turning. They're losing focus on what the actual problem is, right? And it's hurting sure. the people that they're trying to help because. Yo, and then okay, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll let you go after this. I mean, I'll let you speak after this, right? Linda Sarsour, I hate mm. this woman again. Another <laughs> person I do not like, but she is using this language to gain credibility, uh-huh. and she is, I mean, she's a theocrat. She's a Muslim extremist. She wants to push Sharia law, mm-hmm. but she's using the language of intersectionality and critical race theory of how she's a victim, how they're mm-hmm. all victims. Mm-hmm. And she's being lauded. She's a she's a surrogate for Bernie. Yeah. I mean, you know, Bernie's still letting her ride along on his coattails. And this stuff is so easy to subvert that, you know, 
there, there's my example of someone who wants to radicalize people yeah using this stuff to do it and it's i mean it's there in practice it's in our face um i don't know i don't know if you have any thoughts on that yeah absolutely i mean back to your buddy jimmy's example right like it's it's really sad that people are let's say confused about the threat that's in front of them and and that's partially because you know we're a very kind of primitive species even though we think we're sophisticated we're actually really not and the truth of the matter is from my point of view at least or at least my my uh, my reading of things or at least my reading of the literature on like evolutionary theory and stuff is if you have a group identity that is so emotionally meaningful or instinctually meaningful, it's going to overpower any of your critical thinking skills. That's just full stop. That's how we work. So our goal is to kind of have this more adapt, like I call adaptive group identity in my book, like this shades of gray view of who we are. And that's why it's so important, I think, at least my profession, my professional opinion, is to kind of acknowledge what is that makes sense about their view. Right. So let's talk about how white people are bad. Okay, cool. So I'm going to have that conversation with you and I will in full good faith go, okay, historically, what have people with this skin color done? And I'm happy to have that conversation. And how are people like Richard Spencer, for instance, who he's just, he's probably the white version of Linda Sarsour and I can't stand him and I don't wish bad things to happen to him, but I just wish he would go away and never talk again. Like, like, they exist and saying they don't exist and pretending like people with that ideology like Sam Harris did a great talk with someone who was specifically studying white supremacy I forget the the, the researcher's name smart lady I forget her name though um, and, and the, the truth of the matter is it exists so if we don't talk about it and it's still a problem it might not be as giant and cultural a problem as it was in the 1950s in the US and other places but it's still there and it's still a problem let's talk about it I'm happy to have that conversation. Like the whole colorblind thing. When the critical theorists say, you know, colorblindness is racism. Sure. Fully agreed. You're a moron if you think you don't have prejudice based upon skin color. That's insane. Like, we are naturally tribal creatures. So we're going to go, okay, looks a little different. What should I be thinking about? That's perfectly normal. That's why implicit bias is, basically speaking, an okay concept. Now, the way it's used like, you know, a sledgehammer is ridiculous. But the fact that it's basically makes sense from our instinctual point of view sure but how do we talk about it in a nuanced way that's the problem is that these people are using nuclear bombs where a scalpel is needed and that's ridiculous the Linda Sarsours and the Richard Spencers of the world are nuclear bomb figures and it's just so gross the way they generalize and and just use theory and pandering and virtue signaling and all these appeals to our primitive process to just stir up all sorts of negative tribalistic us versus them crap it's gross okay it's so gross richard spencer i think this is a really good example of this now he was you know whatever he he had his following he had his thing he got punched on the inauguration like trump's first inauguration day right he got punched <laughs> yeah. in the face yeah. the whole punch of nazi thing started yeah. that rose his fame that gave him credence that gave him some sort of standing right he sure. got more popularity after that sure when that video just got released or milo milo Yiannopoulos to try to get some credibility back himself released yeah. that audio of richard spencer yeah 
that's done more to damage Richard Spencer's credibility yeah. than that punch in the face. Yeah. So, yes, bring Richard Spencer on a stage. Let him spew his nonsense. I have no problem with that. You know, uh-huh. It's the critical race theorists who say, how dare you have this person? How dare you have that conversation? You speak to them, therefore, you, by, because you spoke to them, you're evil. That's why Daryl Davis is a white supremacist, even though he's a black man who you know, converted or deconverted 200 KKK members personally, right? He's a white supremacist <laughs> because he speaks to KKK members. Now, right. I mean, yeah. So, yes, yeah. you know, I'm willing to, okay, I shouldn't say I'm willing to sit down and talk with, but I would sit down and talk with Richard Spencer to have him air his views. I'd sit down and talk with Linda Sarsour. I think, like I said, I do not like this woman. I think she's absolutely horrible. But I want her to give her bullshit and air it out. I want people to see her for what she is. Absolutely. And I mean, I made, I made the same argument in my video on hate speech that, you know, the, the best way for these people to go away is if they're allowed to speak more and more and more so people see and hear just how ridiculous they are and how sick they are. Because essentially in the wild, we're very, very highly attuned to sickness. Like we look for signs, physical and verbal signs that someone's sick. So we need them to be out there spouting their sickness so that we can identify them and ignore them appropriately. Yeah. Um, listen, I don't want to take up too, too much of your time. Cause like I said, basically you're just, you know, uh, you're just humoring me and my uh, crazy uh, theories here. <laughs> <laughs> We're humoring each other, trust uh, me. But listen, I'll give you the last word. Because uh, I know you wanted to, like, we have been talking about theory or whatever. If you have anything else to say on it, uh, plug your book. Where can people find you? Sure, sure. Uh, so I'll start with the plug and then I'll start with my final thoughts uh, from. Uh, what was the Jerry Springer show? So, uh, <laughs> uh, so you can find me at patricklockwoodhealing.com. You can find me on YouTube, um, the psychology checkup. You can find my book, The Fear Problem, on Amazon, on my website, and on mascotbooks.com. Um, so, yeah, basically, what I would say is I get why people can't stand critical theory, right? Like, I, I'm with James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose and Peter Bogosian and everyone else who just cannot stand critical theory. Definitely get Helen's new book with James. Definitely get Peter's new book and all that. Like, shameless plug for them, too. Here's the problem. The problem is everyone's counter overreacting both directions, right? And I see that as problematic, which is one of your points earlier about this being taught in schools and creating white supremacist kids and, and all that stuff, Right. And I see that as a problem on both sides, and I can't help but go, okay, how do we deal with critical theory in such a way that things actually are talked about realistically? So I think that's going to require, to be quite fair, an honest discussion of why critical theory is useful, which might sound like a misnomer at this point, why critical theory has value, why critical theory needs to be alive, why critical theory needs to keep being applied to things, and why we need to keep shouting out not shouting down, just shouting out, calling out the edge cases who are radical, who are using a theory, a method that should be used like a scalpel as a sledgehammer or worse, like a nuclear bomb. That's a problem because what we're talking about are highly, highly nuanced things. Racism 
is a highly nuanced thing. It's not just a, you're brown, you're white, you're bad, you're good. It's not that simple. I'm sorry. So if we talk about critical theory in a nuanced way, we talk about the ills of critical theory in a nuanced way, and we talk about the, you know, the benefits of critical theory in a nuanced way, we talk about the people espousing critical theory in a nuanced way, I think we will actually have a better dialogue and we might be more able to change some minds. That's my hope, is to grab the people who are not the edge cases in the critical theory world and to grab their attention by being reasonable with them and help them see the nuances of their theory, how it works, how it hurts, etc., and how it shouldn't be applied as a sledgehammer, right? That's my hope, and that's my kind of my final pitch and my final thought. All right, no, that's that's good, and I mean, you know, I can't really find much fault in that because, yes, I do agree with you. There is, you know, intersectionality. There is some legitimate claims there. You know, yeah. the fighting racism. Yes, I'm all on board with that. You know, we want, you know like whatever homophobia transphobia yes, let, let's let's reduce the amount of prejudice to as small as possible and let's give people the tools to like okay you know what maybe I can take a step back why am I doing this why am I you know you know walking down the street at two in the morning and you know whatever I'm a, I'm a fairly large sized guy but if I saw like three guys I don't care what skin color really but if I saw three large guys walking the uh, in the other direction two in the morning I'm by myself I will be more alert and I'll be more careful and you know but you got to realize that and you know some of it is okay it's downtown Montreal it's fairly civilized place probably not much is going to happen there probably is like drunk as I am (laughs) (laughs) anyways thank you very much for talking and uh, I'll put all your links everything at the bottom and thank you everyone for listening all right no problem thanks for having me